Hey, welcome. Welcome, welcome, welcome. It is finally, the weather has settled down. It's 73. As you can tell in the background, I don't have that loud air conditioning pounding because it is 73. I was actually able to, um, my hair all the way, I got elf, elf, hair today. I was actually able to um, uh, be able to breathe through the smoke because there's no smoke right now. It's all, it's all moderate, so I'm really excited about that. So anyway, it's fun because I haven't done a show in so long without the air conditioner. I'm glad to have you guys here. My name is Charlotte. I will be your host for the next hour. And I am the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento, California. We are at www.californiahaunts.org. We are 35 strong up and down the state of California, Washington, Oregon, Nevada. And we also have some people in Hawaii. That's where I want to go. Okay. Anyway, that's enough of that. Anyhow, we have a great show for you today. This is part three of my interview with Andrea Perrin. Andrea Perrin grew, spent time or grew up in the Conjuring House, the famous Conjuring House. Last time she was on, we talked about we talked about extraterrestrials and her connection with them. And today I'm hoping to take us back down that road to the Conjuring House and talk a little bit about that, if she's willing to do that. I'm so glad that this lady was able to come on, you know, for, for, for a third time. Because I really enjoy talking to her. And uh, it's, it's a fun interview and it's a very educational interview. Anyway, I want to thank everybody. Our numbers went through the roof this month. Uh, we're way ahead. I've got what five shows to go this month so far. Um, this is we're in August right now. Five shows to go, and we're going to eclipse our downloads by at least a hundred downloads this month. So I'm really excited about that. So anyway, we'll talk about that at the end. But right now, I'm going to bring a, I'm going to bring Andrea on so we can have, so we can talk to her. Here we go. Hello. Hi, Charlotte. How are you, dear? Fine. How are you? Good. Good. It's hot as hell here in Florida. I mean, we've got a, we've got a uh, heat index today of 107. Oh my! Yeah, it's just it's brutal, brutally hot. Well, I don't want to say you know it makes me happy to hear you hot and me hot, not hot for for change, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it's normally not this bad here, even in the dog days of August, but. Uh, we've just gone through a spell the last few days that is, have been really tough. And so, you know, if you got any going out to do and running around to do, you do it in the morning or you do it in the evening and just hang around in the air conditioning the rest of the day. I, I hear you. I just took my little puppy out before we started, so she's good to go. But she would like to come here. Come here. Come. Let's hear. Let's hear. Oh, this is my baby. This is my Aww. baby. This is my peanut butter cup. And she's Hello, like, mommy, put me, put me on, put me on the <laughs> screen. There she is. She's my sweet angel. I love this dog. She is the center of my universe. Yeah. She is my, my North star. Yes. Isn't that crazy how, how those animals become just such a huge part of our lives? Oh yeah. Well, I've always been an animal advocate. I've always been a, uh, animal rights advocate um, my whole life, uh, as far back as I can remember. And I've rescued well over a hundred animals in my life, but uh, this one, I don't know, there's something about her. There's something about her that's just beyond special. It's just, okay, leave the lip lard on. Okay. I just, <laughs> I just put it on for Charlotte. I just did. Okay. It's no, but it is. It's really amazing, you know, how, how they can take over your life. I've got four cats. Well, I got two adult cats and two semi teenagers. 
and I've got two dogs and I've got, I've got one cockatiel. And so I love it every morning. They're, they're all chirpy and excited to see me, you know, yep. they, they, they don't judge you. <laughs> you know, you can, you can come that out. That we ugly. know of. If they do, they don't <laughs> discuss it with us. <laughs> you can come out looking ugly in the morning and it doesn't matter. They don't care. My bird, no. my bird will wolf whistle no matter how I look. <laughs> yep. So it's kind of nice, yep. you know. It's pretty cool. Hey, the last time we talked, we were talking about um, your your uh, encounters with extraterrestrials, and uh, that that was a fascinating talk. But what I want to get back to is where we left off off the first show was you guys had just moved into that house, and you you started to have things going on. And 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 can you kind of do a backtrack on that real quick, and then we can launch from there. Well, you know, the thing that's most fascinating about that, I think, is that we visited that house a number of times as a family before we actually moved in. Mm -hmm. um, and the thing about it is that I questioned every member of my family uh, at length, in detail, in depth, recalling different times that we went to visit the farm before we actually bought it. And no matter how I pried and prodded, you know, people's memories, um, nobody could recall ever seeing anything strange, hearing anything strange. You know, no one in the family had any recollection at all of having anything happen to any of us that was supernaturally charged um, until we actually owned it. And it was the day that we moved in within moments of moving in um, that it began, that that journey began. Uh, and it started with, it was a freezing cold day, unbelievably cold day. Uh, and there was a swirling snow and ice pellet storm going on where, I mean, every time the wind hit you in the face, it was like being pelted with little, you know, pieces of chunks of ice. I mean, it was just brutal. The trip from the house in Cumberland up to the farm was awful. <laughs> it was awful. It seemed to take forever uh, because, of course, we had to crawl. Um, and, you know, getting the van, the moving van loaded, and it was a whole entourage. It was my, you know, my father's brothers and my meme, my grandmother on my father's side, French meme. Um, and, you know, I mean, friends and family and everybody was there to help. It was, you know, moving day is a big deal for anybody. But when you're moving an entire family of seven, from uh, you know a six-room Cape Cod into a 12-room colonial farmhouse. Mm -hmm. The logistics on that are a freaking nightmare. I mean, it's not Kabul, Afghanistan, but it was a nightmare for <laughs> us. It's, a, it's and, quite a job. Yeah, you know, and God bless those people. God bless those people. I just, I have to say it, you know, we're in the midst of, of, you know, a humanitarian crisis mm -hmm. on the other side of the world. And God bless them all that they find safe passage. Uh, but that said, um, our passage from becoming, from being a normal family to becoming a paranormal family happened on day one. 
at the farm. It was January 11th, 1971. My parents had signed the papers um, and closed on the property uh, prior to December, I mean, prior to Christmas in December of 1970. So we were the legal owners of the farm, but Mr. Kenyon um, had not, he, elderly gentleman, he had not, uh, he just wasn't ready. He just, he wasn't ready. And apparently he didn't have any help. Um, and so he was trying to get his things packed up and organized by himself. And when we got there, he was still packing. Yeah, I mean, his furniture was still there. He was still packing. Um, so we had to move in to that house while he was still preparing to move out. Um, and of course, you know, bedlam, chaos, mayhem, you know, I mean, really, uh, it's just the way it is. Um, and so I grabbed, uh, I was the first one. I traveled in the cab of the truck with my father and he opened up the back of the moving van and he handed me a box marked kitchen um, and said, take this to your mother. And mom had gone around the side of the house and gone in the kitchen door with my baby sister, April, who was only five, certainly not big or strong enough uh, to help with the actual outdoor moving into the house. And the kitchen was the last thing that we packed onto the truck so that it would be the first thing off so that mom could at least get that part of the house, you know, set so we mm -hmm. could have dinner that night. Um, so um, I walked in the closest door to uh, that I could find because on the other side of that door would be some semblance of heat. It was really that cold. And, you know, we were, we were Rhode Island kids, you know, we mm -hmm. were used to being cold, but it was brutal. And uh, so I went in the parlor door, which was closest to the back of the truck. And Mr. Kenyon was standing at his dining room table, um, packing up the last of his belongings out of the corner. There's a built-in um, corner hutch uh, mm -hmm. in the dining room. Um, and he was taking out the last of his wife's china. And she had passed away some 10 years before. So we knew him well. You know, we had spent a great deal of time with him over the six months from when my mother found the farm until we were actually moving in. And I walked up to him and I said, good morning, Mr. Kenyon. And we chatted for a couple of moments and I didn't remember seeing anything else in the room except him and a box on his table and the corner hutch doors open. But when I picked my box back up and turned to walk through the front foyer into the kitchen, there was a uh, gentleman standing there that I had not noticed before. Uh, and he was right at the doorway, almost like he was keeping sentry. And he had his arms crossed and his head cocked a little bit to the side. And uh, his leg, one of his legs was bent and up on the wall, uh, like kind of leaning up against the, the wall between the doorway from the dining room into the foyer. And so as I walked past him, and I mean, Charlotte, I have to tell you, he looked as flesh and blood as I am. He mm -hmm. did. 
He appeared absolutely solid, beating heart, flesh and blood. The only thing I noticed about him is that I thought that he um, was dressed oddly. That, you know, he had clothes on that didn't seem to look like what anybody else wore that I had ever seen. Um, and they looked handmade, you know, not impoverished, but mm -hmm. handmade. Um, and as I walked past him, I said, good morning, sir. And he did not respond to me. He looked right through me as though he did not see me at all. Wow. Um, and did not respond. Um, and so I figure, you know, I'm a kid, you know, keep moving, you know? <laughs> um, and uh, so I walked in the kitchen and I put the box down on the table uh, on Mr. Kenyon's kitchen table because ours hadn't even come in off the truck yet. And uh, I said, mom, who's that man with Mr. Kenyon? And she said, well, there's nobody with Mr. Kenyon. His son's on the way. He's not here yet. So I guess I was 12. I guess oh. I assumed, you know, perhaps a neighbor had stopped mm -hmm. by to say goodbye and came in. I mean, the house is huge. I'm just, you know, I, I must have assumed somebody just came in another door and mm -hmm. mom didn't see them. So, you know, that, that was that. I, you know, all right. And I went back outside the kitchen door and walked back around the front of the house to go get another box. Um, right behind me, my sister Christine came in with a box. She saw him and walked in the kitchen and asked basically the same question. Who's that man with Mr. Kenyon? And my mom's like, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't, I, I don't, I didn't know there was anybody here. You know, um, his son's on the way. I'll be here shortly. He just called. So, you know, um, and so she let it go and went back outside the kitchen door to go back around and get another, uh, another box off the truck. And then um, my sister Cindy came in and mentioned to my mother that there was a man with Mr. Kenyon that oh, wow. was dressed funny. He seemed, you know, he dressed funny. And mom's like, you know, I don't have time to go look or introduce myself or anything right now. She, you know, she and April were pulling open boxes. There was stuff mm -hmm. packing material everywhere. and uh, And she was having to... And the reason she was so flustered and distracted was because when she went to start putting our glassware and our dishes and everything into the pantry cupboards, they were full of Mr. Kenyon's belongings. So she was having to pull all of our dishware out, pile it on the table, and then use the boxes and the packing material that was left over to wrap up and pack Mr. Kenyon's belongings. Mm. So to say my mom was a little overwhelmed that day is the understatement of the new millennium. So anyway, you know, uh, Cindy walks in, she asks mom about it and mom's like, you know what? I, it doesn't matter. I don't care. Um, and meanwhile, you know, the beds are coming in and, you know, people are being told, take that up to this room and take that mm. up to that room. And, you know, I mean, it was nuts. It was bedlam and mayhem and chaos. And uh, then Nancy walked into the kitchen and put her box down and leaned over to Cindy and said, Sin, did you see that man with Mr. Kenyon? 
I did, but he just disappeared. And that was the beginning of it. And then about two or three hours later, and dusk was approaching, because we got a late start moving from the house in Cumberland, plus the low, the slow, long trip up there, out into you know the netherworld. Mm -hmm. um, and um, so it was starting to get dark. And in January in Rhode Island, it's dark by quarter past four, 4.30, by quarter of five, it's, it's like pitch blackout. And we were running out of light and running out of time. Um, and at that point, my father was helping to expedite Mr. Kenyon's belongings onto the moving truck that we had used to move our stuff to the house. And once it was empty, then he, you know, started helping him move things out to the, in fact, wouldn't let him move anything, um, uh, had our, our family do it. Uh, and then at one point we went back in the four of us, April was still in the kitchen with mom. In fact, I think she was asleep on a box in the corner, the poor little thing. She was only five. And uh, so Nancy, Christine, Cindy, and myself were standing in the dining room. And dad came in and leaned over and said, Earl, you know, let's have a talk here. He's like, um, you know, you don't have to leave. You don't. Um, there's this house is huge. There's plenty of room for you if you would rather stay here. Mm -hmm. And as my father is inviting him to live with us, because it was obvious he did not want to leave his home. It was mm -hmm. his son that had forced the issue. Mm -hmm. uh, it was just, you know, and so dad's like, you know, we'll rearrange the bedrooms. You know, we can, you know, we'll, we'll make this work. We can make this work. Our whole family loves you. You are welcome to stay with us. And Mr. Kenyon was so touched by that. So, I mean, really, it was, it was so sweet. And um, all of a sudden, the apparition appeared in the corner, full body apparition appeared right back in the corner where he had been standing hours earlier in the same position, arms crossed, his head kind of, and he had a quirky little smile on his face. And my sisters and I start looking at each other like, do you see that? Do you know, do you? I mean, we, we knew not to say anything. Okay. I don't know how we knew not to say anything, but we knew. And I think the reason we knew not to say anything was because that apparition was standing a few feet away from my father and Mr. Kenyon, and they didn't see him, and we did. And that was our formal introduction to a paranormal life, which has never ended since. So did you eventually explain to your dad, or I know you tried to tell your mother about seeing him. Did they see him eventually, or or did it, well, did, did it come through things where you guys were scared or, or something like that to where they came to the, reality, you know, the realization that things were going on? I don't think my father ever saw him. If he did, I I cannot recall him ever saying so. Um, I, but I know my mother did. And in fact, my mother was the only one that he ever acknowledged. Um, he was kind of a peripheral figure in the house. Um, 
He was like, you know, that quiet family member that stands off to the side and observes everything. Mm -hmm. um, and I, none of us felt any kind of a threat or, you know, any kind of, you know, it wasn't a danger Will Robinson moment for any of us. I mean, it was really more of a, do you believe your own eyes? Do you see what I say? Is this real? What's going on here? <clears throat> and we were little kids, you know, so you don't feel particularly empowered at that age to start throwing up red flags and saying, whoa, 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 wait a minute. You know, I mean, when you're absorbing what your senses are taking in and you can't really even verbalize what it is and you see that the adults around you do not see what you see then mm -hmm. it's just best to stay quiet until you figure it out. Um, but yeah, um, we saw him a lot in the house. Uh, he was almost always in the same place. He was not a wanderer. He mm -hmm. really did not wander around the house. Uh, he stayed between the dining room and the front foyer. And a few years into the time that we lived there. And my mom had not seen him, um, but we did, the kids did all the time. Um, and one day she was gathering up some laundry, a laundry basket out of the bathroom. And she came out into the kitchen and rounded the corner into the front foyer and stopped. And he was standing there and he was talking to someone that was standing on the, the bottom landing of the stairs that went up to my sister Nancy's room. Um, and she dropped her basket. I mean, it startled her and she dropped her basket of clothes. And he turned and he looked directly at her and he smiled and he was dressed differently according to how she described him was dressed actually differently than how we had seen him. He actually had a suit jacket on and it had patches on the elbow, like where it had been worn through and right. actually patched. You know, it wasn't a fashion statement as much as it appeared to be, you know, by necessity. Mm -hmm. um, and he had one hand in his pocket of his trousers and he appeared to be in conversation with wow. someone that was supposedly standing in front of him. He was actually in the foyer, not uh, outside right. the hallway. hallway. Um, and somebody handed him something and he tucked it in his pocket and he turned, but my mom couldn't see who he was talking to and she couldn't see what was handed to him. Just that he reached out, he took something and slipped it down in his pocket and left his hand in his pocket. And when oh. she rounded the corner, he turned and he looked at her and he smiled and then he was gone. Wow. And that was the only like actual conscious contact that was ever made with him. And my sister named him Manny because he was a man and uh -huh. she was a little kid and that's the only name she could come up with. Um, but according to the historical records in the town, uh, there was a, a, I guess you would say middle-aged man, you know, not middle-aged now, but for that time, 
uh, man, about 45, um, that had died in the house named Johnny Arnold, uh, one of the Arnold family, who um, Mr. McEachern, the, um, you know, the town historian that befriended my mother, said that Johnny Arnold had died in the house and it was, uh, they thought that it might have been a suicide, uh, that he was drinking horse liniment, which is mm. like 95% alcohol, and um, and he died. Um, but I don't, the messages that I got around that was that it was an accident, that it was not a deliberate act. He just, you know, that was the cheapest way to get alcohol and he was a drinker and um, apparently he had some kind of something ruptured in his stomach and he began vomiting blood and he bled out and they found his body. And um, so Mr. McEachin thought it might have been a suicide, but he didn't say it was definitively. Um, and, um, and I don't believe that it was either. I think it was just an accidental death and that there was, you know, he had a, a physical uh, reaction to putting poison in his body. You know, horse liniment is poison. You don't, right. you do not ingest horse <laughs> liniment. Um, but if that's all you can get for alcohol and you're an alcoholic, then, you know. Well, it's like these kids nowadays, you know, uh, drinking the uh, hand sanitizer. Yeah. Yikes. Yeah. How many times when we were kids that our parents wanted to put soap in our mouths to punish us, right? Yeah, and how horrible that taste was. And I can't imagine kids wanting to actually, you know, drink that. Yeah, no. Well, fortunately, I didn't have the kind of parents that did stuff like that. <laughs> um, and uh, I'm so glad to say, not, you know, to mention we would have swallowed our tongues before we ever <laughs> swore in front of our parents. So, you know. We were, once. Once. we were sheltered. We were, we were innocent for a pretty long time in spite of the environment that we lived in. And maybe in some ways, perhaps because of the environment that we lived in, right. Right. that, you know, we were sheltered from, uh, we didn't have a whole lot of friends, uh, that would come over to the house. We did have a few. Um, and uh, several of them had experiences of their own there. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and I included their stories in the books as well. Um, but uh, we were we were kind of like our own tribe. You know what I mean? We were the Baron clan um, and we were each other's friends and each other's companions. And so, uh, you know, I had my friend uh, Margie Bailey She's the one that taught me how to play guitar. Uh, Nancy had Katie. Mm -hmm. Christine had Michelle. April had Linda. And Cindy had Lori. So each one of us had a girlfriend that would occasionally come to the house. And I would say probably at some point or another, all of them had some experience in the farmhouse. And I did change a couple of names in the books um, because, you know, they were, uh, they didn't want to be judged and they didn't want to be singled out. And even mm -hmm. though 
um, you know, openly admit and will talk to uh, any number of people about the experiences that they had. They didn't want their full formal names in the books. Absolutely. So, you know, I, that was fine. I just changed their names. So Johnny was just the beginning for you guys, though. I mean, he, he was the first the, the first one you saw because there, there were other things that, that were going to go on later on, correct? Yeah. Yeah, there were... Um, Charlotte, you know, I, I don't know how I can adequately express in mere words what, I mean, it took me seven years and three books to hmm. tell the bulk of it. And it, it doesn't even include everything. There were things that happened in the house that my sisters found so disturbing um, or incidents that they felt were too personal that they did not want included in the books. And, mm -hmm. you know, I um, respected that and, you know, left several very profound incidents out. Um, they've since reconsidered and allowed me, as I write the screenplays to the trilogy, um, have allowed me to include those stories that will eventually make it onto film. But um, at the time that I was writing the books and I started writing in 07 um, and published the first one in 2011 and then 2013 and then 2014. Um, you know, it was, um, they didn't know how to handle all of this. They certainly didn't know how to handle the notoriety. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> they did not know how to respond to uh, but you know, I, everything that I wrote about them each, uh, they read, you know, they got to approve every single story in the books, um, mm -hmm. to make sure. And I wanted them to, because it was, excuse me, <coughs> mm. allergy season in Florida. Oh, I know. That's um, why I keep, I, I, I do not snort oh. anything. People just for the record, I don't snort. Okay. I'm just doing this. It's well, just it's much, you've been dealing with so much smoke from <laughs> fires that it's, you know, I don't know how you're breathing out there. Oh, God almighty. Our it's horrible. Last night, uh, I went out to get some dinner around 8 o'clock last night, and the moon was orange. Yeah. Literally orange. It's yeah. horrible. I know. It is. I'm so sorry. The <laughs> losses. Oh, my God. The losses. I know. My mother called me this morning, and she's like, oh, Ann. She said, don't even turn the news on, you know, counting the losses, counting. The, and she had just heard a story about someone who killed someone else outside of the airport in Kabul for a bottle of water. Yeah. Um, yep. I just, you know, my heart breaks. I, I can't even, I can't handle it. I can't. I need I to. I was watching that for a couple of days. And it just got to the point I had to turn it off because it was just overwhelming. Yeah, I don't need to go, you know, into a hospital for clinical depression. You know, I just yeah. don't. Yeah. Uh, you know, not to mention there's no hospital beds available in America because, right? you know, because, yeah. COVID. That, you know, oh, God. Oh, my God. That's just oh, So, anyway. So, anyway. there. Yeah. All right. Let's go back to the netherworld. So, my um, other question that I had, too, with this is that, obviously, because you got, you, you girls were young. 
So you all have sensitive abilities because everybody, you know, everybody's born with them. Everybody has them up to a I certain so point because they start, you know, doing other things and they forget about them. So, I mean, this was a hotbed. So Johnny was only Johnny was only the beginning because he probably he was the one that, that left the door open anyway for stuff to come in. Well, he is the one that was, I think, most attached to Mr. Kenyon because mm -hmm. he never that first day, that moving day. He mm -hmm. never took his eyes off of Mr. Kenyon. And, you know, my assumption was that in some way he had come to say goodbye or to watch over him while he was packing, you know, just to be there for him. Um, but I felt nothing but a sense of kindness and support, uh, you know, for, for, I, I didn't have any sense of any foreboding or a threat or it just seemed so bizarre. I mean, ghosts were not on the radar for my family, mm -hmm. Charlotte. They weren't. I mean, the only time we ever even heard that word was at Halloween when we had to find an old white sheet to cut holes in. So somebody could be the ghost in the family, you know, when we went trick or treating, right. um, you know, or in church the father and the son and the Holy ghost, mm -hmm. you know, we were raised Catholic, you know, we went to church, um, which was, uh, you know, really completely and utterly misrepresented in the conjuring. Um, and I understand that they were trying to juxtapose our family, uh, with the, um, devout Roman Catholic Warrens. But um, I thought that my mother was pissed off about that. She felt that, you know, it, it did a disservice. It made us look like we were, you know, somehow godless, you know, minus yeah. anything spiritual in our lives. And that just wasn't the truth. Um, and so she really resented uh, our portrayal in terms of, she said, you know, we weren't uh, godless heathens. You know, we were we were Roman Catholic. All of you were baptized. All of you were, you know, made your first communion. All of you, you know, it's like, no, 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 no. Um, but uh, anyway, that said, um, there were numerous apparitions in the house that we saw in over the years in um, varying degrees of manifestation. Mm -hmm. Um Sometimes it was just a swirling ball of what appeared to be blue-gray smoke that seemed to be trying to assume some form. Um, and I had, I had a number of uh, encounters with that, a number of encounters with uh, that type of activity, um, all the way to full body apparition encounters, which happened uh, with, it happened with me uh, when I was 17, I saw an apparition standing right beside me. My whole family saw her, but I saw her face. Um, and I was home for, to, to celebrate my 18th birthday. I'd just gone off to college about six weeks before and I was miserable and I hated it. And I had the roommate from hell. I would have swapped any of my ghosts for her. Trust me when I tell you, let there be a special hell for that bitch to burn in. I'm sorry. Pardon my language. But still, 50 years later, still hate her. Um, she was so unkind. She was so mean. 
mean-spirited person. Um, but uh, I was miserable. I just didn't even, you know, I wanted to leave college and not go back. Um, and so my father flew me home for, to celebrate my birthday. And uh, she appeared on the hearthstone next to me. And she was standing sideways. So I felt her before I saw her. My father saw her first. Mm -hmm. and said, someone's come to welcome you home. And I felt it. My whole right side of my body was just ice cold. Uh, and I was standing right in front of the fire. I was like right in front of the fire, like really actually standing too close to the fire because um, I had brown corduroys on. See, I tell you, you remember every little detail when you have one of these encounters. And... Um, I turned and I looked at her. I could turn my head. I didn't feel like I could move my body, but I could turn my head and I looked at her. And I was looking into the face of uh, an elderly woman who resembled me now, Whoa. except that she had a huge wad. My hair used to be all the way down my back. I could sit on my hair for years and years. Growing up, I didn't get my hair cut until I was 15. And then they made a boatload of wigs out of it for cancer patients. Um, and um, But she had big hair. And it was all wadded in a bun on the top of her head. Um, and it was kind of puffy on the sides, like it was mm -hmm. pulled out and then up. Um, and she was a mirror image of a reflection of how I look now. Um, so she was probably in her 60s. Um, and she was wearing um, clothes indicative of the mid-1800s. Uh, she had a beautiful dress on. It had, uh, you know, the leg of mutton sleeves that are puffy at the top and then very slender down the arm. And it had pearls all the way down the, the forearm. Um, it was a beautiful dress. And she was just kind of floating there. I didn't see any feet. She was just kind of floating there. And, but she looked at me and she smiled. And her smile, every one of her features, they were identical to me. And I just remember thinking, oh, you know, uh, I, I don't even know how I responded to her. I hope I, I, I hope I smiled back. I hope that I did. I don't even remember how I, I was so shocked mm -hmm. to see me in this woman that it really just, you know, took me back. And then she just kind of faded away. And everybody in the family at that point who are, were all sitting at the dining room table waiting for me to join them. Um, Cause I had gone upstairs to my old, my room to, you know, drop my luggage. Mm -hmm. and uh, had come just come back downstairs and decided to warm up in front of the fireplace because I was so cold, so cold. Uh, and I had, I guess, in the six weeks that I'd been gone, forgotten the difference between natural cold and supernatural cold, but I mm -hmm. was cold. Um, and so it was while I was standing in front of the fire that she appeared. And I only saw her that one time. Um and nobody else saw her face, just me. And it wasn't until the day that we moved out of the farm four years later that I told my mother 
who I saw. Mm-hmm. Everybody knew what I saw because they all saw her too. Mm-hmm. But I identified her to my mother and as a mirror image reflection of me as an old woman. And she reached over. I was driving the car and she reached over and put her hand on mine. And she said, I always knew we bought this house for you. Wow. But do you think it could have been, I mean, there's always relatives that we don't know what they look like, you know, from like way, way back Mm -hmm. ancestors. And I'm Mm -hmm. sure there's probably an ancestor, and I'm not not trying to discount it or anything, don't get the wrong idea, but I'm sure there's probably an ancestor from way back that looks just like you. Well, you know, we traced the family that lived in that house all the way back to the people who built it. Mm -hmm. Um, And there is no ancestral connection between the Perrin family and the Arnolds or the Richardsons. Absolutely mm-hmm. none. Um, I'm, you know, and I'm not discounting that. I don't no, know. If I, no, if I could say definitively, yes, I know it was me from an earlier lifetime, I would right. say so. Um, I even doubt that in that I feel like this is my first time on this planet based on mm-hmm. my reaction to being here, which is what is this? Mm-hmm. What am I doing here? It has always felt foreign to me. It has, I've always felt like a misfit on planet earth my whole life. And so I never really, I don't negate, nor do I buy into completely the notion of reincarnation. Sure. Um, but I do know, and I do know that there are spirits who are capable I don't know how, but are capable of actually um, kind of morphing into what they want to look like in front of you. So, you know, some say it's a poltergeist. Some say it's a demon. I mean, you know, really, you know what? They don't know any more than I know. In fact, you know, probably a whole lot less. So I don't buy into any of it. What I say and what I speak is my truth. I don't know. I don't know. I had know. a good friend who was a ghost hunter who's passed away now. And um, she was the first one that ever really made any sense to me. She did a seminar here in Sacramento. And she says, she, the first thing she said when she came out is she says, there's no experts in this field. That's right. She and says, I anybody say, that, I say any, anyone that says they're an expert, run, get away from yep. them. Yep. Yep. They're yep. lying to you. They're lying to themselves. They're lying. There yeah. are no experts in this field. There aren't. Nope. Nobody's no, no. got the answers. <laughs> if my family doesn't know, nobody does. Nobody. I mean, to live steeped in that environment with numerous spirits and, and apparitions, we had a father and a son and their dog that I saw several times standing on the landing, the top landing of my bedroom stairs. Um, we, of course, have the one with the broken neck that um, kept approaching my mother, um, and she was hideous. She was absolutely hideous, and her head looked like a desiccated hornet's nest um, with black hollow eyes, two holes for her nostrils, like the nose was gone, just two mm-hmm. holes, and and very thin lips with jagged yellow teeth um, and sprigs of hair popping up off the 
crown of this thing that looked like it used to be a head and cobwebs all over her. She was absolutely hideously Yuck. disgusting. And um, she was the one that was haunting and taunting my mother. And that was not Bathsheba Sherman. You know, I, I truly, based on all the research that my mother did of the people that were associated with that house, you know, the conjuring got that completely wrong and they knew they got that wrong because they read my books before they made right. that movie. Um, and, um, you know, the thing is, Charlotte, only one of the spirits in that house ever self-identified, only one. And it was the little boy who uh, befriended my sister, April, um, and vice versa. And he told her that his name was Oliver Richardson. And that was well before my mother did the history on the house because when we bought it, it was known as the Arnold, the old Arnold estate. Yeah. And um, it was years, a couple of years after we moved in that my mother discovered that it was actually the Richardson family that had followed Roger Williams down from the Massachusetts Bay Colony and settled in the colony of Rhode Island and was deeded the property that became later the Arnold estate through marriage. Because at that time, 300 years ago, women could not own property. Um, they had to be married and their husband would own it. Mm -hmm. And thank God those days are over, huh? Yes, yes. I need to stay that way. Um, but um, he was literally the only one that ever identified himself to any of us. And the rest of it is uh, based on um, very spotty history. You know, Facebook didn't exist today. You can go mm -hmm. find out what your friend had for breakfast. Right. Um, but, you know, <laughs> to even have the, the history that my mother was able to get was a very long, arduous journey through dusty books and archives and town hall and the old library and you know, and, and, and still it was, you know, she had about 20 pieces of a thousand piece puzzle, right. you know, so that's pretty tough to put together. So we don't know who they were mm -hmm. for me that they still are is what is fascinating and miraculous and life affirming for me to know, to know that there is something beyond our mortal existence absolutely. to know that. Absolutely. So as, as kids, you, you, your mother saw, I don't know, the Banshee, you know, whatever she was. Did you guys see anything like that? You know, anything negative like that? My sister Cindy saw her too. Okay. Uh, and in fact, she reached out to Cindy and said, come with me, little girl, come with me. Oh, hell no. And my <laughs> sister freaked out freaked out, wow. came running downstairs, screaming and crying and plowed into my mother in the kitchen wow. and said, I don't want to go with her, mommy. I don't want to. I'm, I'm yours. You're my mommy. You're my mommy. I'm not going with her. And my mother's like, what the hell just happened? You know, I mean, it was terrible for Cindy. And she was only about eight or nine when that happened. Um, it was probably, I would say, probably within the first year. Um, and then Christine saw her uh, a couple of years later. 
um, and she was leaning over Christine while she was in her bed. Um, and it was in the same way that she had leaned over my mother while mm -hmm. she was in her bed. Um, and then there was, you know, a spirit that actually spoke to my mother and she was gathered with all of the spirits in the house and she was chanting what could only be described as an incantation. And what she was saying was, uh, "'Twas mistress once afore ye came, and mistress here will be anon, will drive ye out with fiery broom, will drive ye mad with death and gloom." And it's a long incantation. It's and the only reason- yeah, and, and the only reason that we know it is because um, my father hypnotized um, my mother, took her to a psychiatrist, and he was the one that performed the hypnotism because he is a hypnotist. And then he let the psychiatrist take over and ask the questions. And that was the day that my father became a believer. That wow. was the day because he said, <clears throat> you can't lie under hypnosis. You know, not that he was accusing my mother. Well, you know, he accused my mother of several things, including having a very vivid imagination. But once my mother was on, under hypnosis and, and quoting back to him what had been said to her um, and was having, revisiting the same terror, revisiting, you know, sitting in a chair, the look on her face, he said it brought him to tears. Um, and he said, never again, we'll, we'll never do this again. We will never do this again. And, um, you know, it was, it was terrible. I mean, she was exhausted by it, absolutely exhausted by it, but I guess it's what he needed for confirmation that the mm -hmm. bizarre things that she was telling him were true. And he was laying right in the bed beside her when right. this occurred and he seemed to her to be in some kind of a trance or some type of suspended animation or paralysis, sleep paralysis, something, because she tried every way she knew to wake him up <laughs> and she couldn't. And she thought he was dead and she thought she was next. So the movie, I, I saw, I didn't see the whole movie. I saw it towards the end when they were, when, when, when you know, the, the being was was after you guys and all that. So really, as I'm listening, this is kind of um, the woman with the neck, and then this one with the incantation. They kind of combine that in, in, into one. Yeah. Ghost in the movie. Yeah, there's about five percent of the movie that's absolutely accurate, and the rest mm -hmm. of it was conjured in the minds of two creative screenwriters who mm -hmm. actually wanted to had read my books had been through every story, had spent hours and hours talking to me about what actually happened uh, and talking to other members of my family as well in consultation prior to writing the screenplay. And they did try to include some of the true story um, from the books and not a single scene in The Conjuring comes directly from the books. Sure. Um, and it's because even big shot Hollywood um, executives are still fear-based carbon units at mm -hmm. heart. And mm -hmm. when they tried to write some of these scenes into the screenplay, they sent it back seven times. It's like one for each member of the family. It got sent <laughs> back and they said, redact it, take it out, 
um, and their attitude was there's no point in um, there's just no point in making a movie that people will not stay to watch the end. Yeah, yeah. You know, but uh, and I know it's disputed, but I don't believe that my mother was possessed uh, during the seance that occurred with the Warrens and their medium and the priest that they brought. I don't. I think she was attacked, and sure. what attacked her had was invited in by the medium mm -hmm. having thrown open wide the doors to the sure. netherworld sure, um, sure, sure. which is spiritual malpractice as far as I am concerned you know you don't come into a, a house that is that haunted and that has that much activity and invite more trouble in it's just mm -hmm. it's irresponsible it is. Um, and whatever it was attacked my mother and picked her up and tossed her from the middle of our dining room into the middle of our parlor floor. And everyone that was present in the house heard her skull hit the floor. Ugh. And Mr. and Mrs. Warren left that house um, that night with my father livid out of his mind, having already punched Ed Warren in the face and, um, and threw them out of the house. And it was, very, it was a very, very ugly scene um, and they left not knowing whether or not my mother was alive when they left the house. Uh, they came back about six or seven weeks later when they saw that my father's car was not in the yard, so he was away, um, and came to the kitchen door just to make sure that she had survived what had happened that night. And that's the truth. You know, the problem, and, and I use mediums on my team, obviously, and... <clears throat> the problem, even even normal people, what they don't realize is, is you know, is, I see these these people contacting me, saying, "Oh, I've got this going on in my house. I've got that going on in my house." Then when you offer them help, they say, "Oh no, I can handle it. It's okay." But what people don't realize is 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 once you open that door, it you never can't closes. Stop. It never closes, and you don't know what's going to come through. Right. Right. That's right. And you, you certainly know, don't invite trouble and tempt no. fate. No, no, nope, absolutely not. So, um, this is this is absolutely fascinating to me. I mean, you, you guys grew up in this house that was so active, and you mentioned something about the walls. The last time, uh, the first time we talked, you mentioned something about the walls. Oh, my sister Cindy, my little sister Cindy, um, was surrounded by uh, beings that she could not see. She never saw them. Mm -hmm. but she heard them um, and they would surround her bed. Um, and she was terrified by it. She said it was so loud. She didn't understand why it didn't wake up everyone in the house, but they were talking to her specifically. And it started almost immediately, almost immediately uh, within the second or third night, she was crawling into bed with me with tears in her eyes. Uh, and I asked her what was wrong. And she said, I hear voices in my room. Well, she was sleeping with Christine who talks in her sleep. So I figured it was probably Christine. And mm -hmm. she said, no, Chris is asleep. She's sound asleep. She's not the one she said. And so I asked her what she heard. And she said, there are seven dead soldiers buried in the wall. There are yeah. seven dead soldiers buried in the wall. And she said they would say it redundantly. I mean, literally over and over, night after night after night, um, and say it louder and louder. And she would put her pillow over her head to try to drown it out until she couldn't stand it anymore. And then she would bolt out of her room into my room right next door and crawl into bed with me. 
And that's wow. the only thing that would make it stop. Wow. I what asked her when I was writing the books, how many times that happened to her over the course of the 10 years that we lived in the house. And she just looked at me with tears in her eyes and she said, thousands. Wow. So you guys, you know, initially you, you, you guys all saw Johnny. Yes. As, is there anything except else for that, April. Except April, April didn't see him. You gals, I'm sorry, not guys. Um, mm -hmm. But over the years growing up, and, and like you talk about different experiences that, 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 that your sister had, like, like the soldiers in the walls. Is there anything else that is, is, is there anything else that all of you saw, whether it was at one time or another or, or, or as a group? Gosh. There were many times that we as an entire family would see something happening in the house. Mm -hmm. um, there was uh, there, there were many times that, you know, in, in groupings, you know, whether it was three or four or five or seven of us all at once, like the apparition on the fireplace with me, mm -hmm. everybody in the family saw that. Everybody did. Um, the, the sound of that, you know, horrific loud horn going off in the basement, um, that set the dogs wild. I mean, they lost their minds, um, when that happened and my father went running downstairs into the cellar. Um, and we had a, a, a door, an enormous solid oak door that came to, to the, abutted the end of the cellar. Um, that could be opened to let cattle in and out um, mm -hmm. during the, the worst of the cold in the winter through the woodshed down into the cellar. And that door had been lifted off of its hinges and thrown halfway oh. down the, the uh, thrown at least 50 feet down the cellar and was leaning up against one of the granite walls with horsehair plaster um, just I mean, it hit the wall so hard that it literally crumbled some of the plaster around it. And that, and that was <clears throat> physically impossible. Right. Impossible. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that door only locked from the inside. And that Yikes. door was always locked. And so nobody entered our house from the woodshed and was able to open that door. It would have taken four men. It took four men to pick that door up and put it back on its hinges. You guys are lucky that whatever that was never came into the house where you guys were. It did. Oh, it did. It did. And what happened, uh, dare I ask? Or well, if you're uncomfortable about talking about it, that's fine too. I, I can't help but believe that whatever it was, was the same thing that picked my mother up in a 30 pound chair and threw her from one room to another in a split second that makes sense wow and i saw that i saw that happen i was 15 years old when that happened and it was the most traumatizing event of my life and I do thank God every day that my mother has no recollection of it. Mm -hmm. It's amazing that it didn't do more damage to you guys because I mean, obviously it, you know, it, it, it wasn't happy. No, it, 
it could have killed her. Yes. Um, it didn't want to kill her. It wanted to make its presence known to everyone yeah. else in make the house. Make a statement. And yeah. it did. Yeah. Wow. But, wow. you know, it was, even now my mother will would tell you, if my mom was sitting right here with me right now, she would tell you that as difficult as those years were, they were likewise the most enlightening and inspirational and illuminating years of her life and that she has lived her entire life since then absolutely mm -hmm. unafraid of death which is probably the most debilitating and most private fear that most human beings harbor and she now knows it's not a matter of faith it's not a matter of belief it's a matter of knowledge by experience. And my mother knows that there is something beyond our mortal existence, but none of us can still, you know, tell you what it is. And like I said before, for me personally, I likewise find it comforting knowledge because I would really hate to think that we live this long, if we're lucky, long mm -hmm. life um, as arduous as it can be, but then to have all of that evaporate with the death of the vessel, to have all of that, all the loving and the learning and the growing and, you know, the music that we make and the art that we create and the dance and the laughter and the love, the love, to have all of that dissipate into the ether upon our death seems an extraordinary waste to me mm -hmm. and to know that in some way, shape or form that we go on is um, uh, a comfort, solace. It is, it's a comfort, it's a huge comfort. Yeah. Andrea, thank you so much. You're welcome, This was our, our third and final interview and I, I, I enjoyed all three of them and I, I just love talking to you. I love it, even, even off camera, you know, but, <laughs> I, I, at some point, if it's okay with you down the line, I'd love to get you back on. You have a lot of projects coming up. So let's talk about your projects. I do. I, do. I can't really talk about a lot of them right now, okay. but in a few months I'll be able to. So, so I will. That. I'll give you the exclusive, Charlotte. I'll okay, come sounds back. good. All right, <laughs> sounds good. Thank you so much for being on. And um, guys, uh, you're going to have to read the rest of the details in, in her books. And uh, let's hear about your books real fast. Uh, it's a trilogy of books. It's called House of Darkness, House of Light, Volumes 1, 2, and 3, um, if available on Amazon. and it's I, They're actually available through any bookseller, but you'd overpay through any uh, brick-and-mortar uh, bookseller where Amazon has a tendency to run them on special as a three-part, you know, three-pack deal. Uh, it's you, you save, you know, I think a boatload of money getting them that way. Um, and or you can uh, just contact me and get them directly from me signed with, uh, you know, all the little goodies that I include in every box that goes out. Um, and so people can reach me on Facebook. They can reach me. Fastest best way to reach me is through my fan page on Facebook. It's called the Buttercup Brigade, Buttercup Brigade, the good deed doers who are the cool. rose colored glasses wearers. And um, my admin will make sure if you want a copy of the book, 
uh, the first volume or second or third, um, uh, that um, she'll make sure that uh, we can connect uh, to, to do that. I don't sell them off my website because if I did, that's all I would ever do is ship mm -hmm. books. It's literally yeah. all I would ever do instead of write new books. So um, yeah, we do that. I do it one at a time, you know, piecemeal or, or three at a time. Um, but you can find me everywhere. All you have to do is Google my name. I'm really everywhere out there. Yeah, you have a podcast too, right? I do. Um, I have a, my own show. It's called The World Awakening. Uh, it's on my Andrea Perrin YouTube page. Uh, it simulcasts every Thursday night on Facebook and then archives um, on my YouTube page. And it's a wonderful show. I talk to a lot of different people that I've you know, come to know well in the paranormal field. And um, I, I think that it's, uh, it really is a joy. We talk about everything, everything. It's uh, very um, casual and loving and very friendly. A lot of uh, people get to, it's got two chat rooms. So people get to interact as they want. And uh, it's a, it's a great show. It's every night, every Thursday night at nine o'clock Eastern. Fantastic. Yeah, I've I've kind of been sneaking in and looking in on you. So yeah. Thank you, dear. It is a good thank show. You. It is a good show. Well, thank you very much. And I've been looking forward to talking to you when things get really rolling for you. I know you've been really busy, so I have. Keep I'm it off up, lady. to St. Marie. Um next week I'll be up there for five days for the Upper Peninsula Michigan Paracon, which wow. is a huge paracon. It's a really great time. So that's my next trip. Now that I'm back yeah. on the road, because I'm all vaxxed up and ready to go. There you go. All right. Well, thank you very much, Andrea. I appreciate it. Have You're a good welcome. one. All you right. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Well, that was fun. It's always fun to have her on. She is, she's so fun to talk to and so knowledgeable about what's going on. I apologize again for wiping my nose because, I don't know, the first half of the show, I guess, it was just dusty in here or something from the smoke last night. Um, like I said, there was an orange moon. And when I got up yesterday at 6, 6.30, it looked like Mars outside. You know, you're looking at the sky and it, it was that orange. But anyway, um, that was fun to have Andrea on. I want to talk about our numbers. If you like our show, come visit us on our YouTube channel. All you got to do is Google California Haunts YouTube and we will come up and you can come check out all 58 of our 58, 59 of our videos. Um, also, we're looking for subscribers. We have 60 right now. We're trying to build up our, our subscriber numbers. So please subscribe because we're going to keep having great shows like this three times a week and hopefully to go to four times a week at some point. But for now, it's at three times a week. If you uh, see the ticker down at the bottom too, California Haunts is a nonprofit paranormal investigation team. So we don't make any money about any money from what we do. And we'd really appreciate possibly a donation here and there so that we can keep this show on the air and buy new equipment and, and do everything so we can help people out and keep nice guests coming. And those donations can be made at paypal.me at California Haunts. And if you like the show, share it with five people. If you didn't like the show, share it with five of your enemies. We're just trying to get you know keep our name out, out there and, and, and build our audience up. And it's been working pretty, pretty steadily. We're real excited this month because we're about to crack uh, an extra 100 downloads ahead of last month. So we're really excited. Um, we not only do this this version of the show, but it does go out as a podcast on Google, Apple, and uh, Pod, Podmod and a few other places. 
that you can pick up on. And uh, this show directly, uh, there'll be a big announcement on Facebook when this show gets released. I've got to do some editing on it. But I thank you all for coming. Uh, join us on the next show, which I can't give a date because I think this one's not going to air for a bit. So it just depends on when this one airs. So anyway, um, I thank you. And uh, I appreciate you guys joining us. And you guys have a good whatever it is, weekend or, or evening or whatever it's going to be. Thank you.